ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm reading for you three recent posts by biochemist Michael Behe, originally appearing at Evolution News and Science Today. Behe is Professor of Biological Sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a Senior Fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He is author of Darwin's Black Box, The Edge of Evolution, Darwin Devolves, and others. The first post, titled Much Ado About Lactase Persistence, asks the question, Is our ability to produce lactase in adulthood a great example of evolution or devolution? Nothing shows the feebleness of Darwinism quite so much as breathless stories about brand new results. This week, the topic was lactase persistence, the ability of some humans to continue to metabolize the milk sugar lactose past weaning and into adulthood. A bunch of news stories reported on a research article that claimed to demonstrate the old way of thinking about the topic was probably wrong. The old hypothesis was pretty straightforward. Like the young of other mammalian species, human babies produce an enzyme, lactase, that breaks down the sugar, lactose, in mother's milk, which is the first step in the metabolism of lactose. The gene for lactase is normally switched off after weaning, so adults can't drink milk without suffering unpleasant gastrointestinal symptoms. About 10,000 years ago, some human societies began to herd cattle. Thus, the old thinking went, any person then with a mutation that allowed them to drink cow or sheep or goat milk as an adult without getting sick would have a new source of nutrition that wasn't available to non-mutants. So, random mutation and natural selection kicked in, and a few hundred generations later, most folks in Europe do indeed have a mutation that causes lactase to be produced in adulthood. Who could ask for a more compelling example of the power of the Darwinian mechanism? Well, I could. The gene for lactase is about 50,000 nucleotides long, is composed of 17 exons, and has a 1,000 nucleotide promoter region preceding it. On the other hand, mutations that cause LP are single nucleotide changes. Any of several distinct ones will work. Just one, count them one, unit out of more than 50,000. What's more, the change results in what in Darwin devolves I termed a loss of functional coded element. The mutation apparently, the situation still isn't nailed down, destroys a pre-existing binding site near the gene for a regulatory protein, that once switched off the gene at the appropriate developmental age. That's not evolution, it's devolution, or devolution. An analogy might be to a small screw falling out of your car that renders the emergency brake inoperable. That might actually help in some odd driving circumstance, but it is not the kind of process that would build an emergency brake, let alone a car, in the first place. As simple and plausible as the lactose scenario sounds, the new paper says the old conventional wisdom doesn't fit the facts. In reality, a lot of modern people who don't make lactase as adults happily drink milk or eat ice cream anyway and shrug off the minor digestive consequences. Using data from ancient pottery samples and genetic analysis of ancient human remains, the authors showed there was also no correlation between milk consumption in antiquity and the presence of the lactase mutation in a region. 
They poo-poo the selective value of the mutation by itself and claim that it wouldn't have spread so quickly if it gave such a slight advantage. So what does explain the spread of the mutation? All the authors have to offer is speculation. They suggest that although the mutation wouldn't be of much help in ordinary times, in times of famine or plague, a bit of intestinal distress can be fatal, perhaps jacking up the selective value. They gesture at some data they say supports the association of the mutation with times of famine and disease. But it's hard to have any confidence in their more convoluted story when the simpler story was very persuasive, widely accepted, and wrong. The starkest lesson. And that is the starkest lesson of the paper. One of my major points in Darwin Devolves was the impossibility, not just difficulty, of knowing that Darwinian evolution drove the unfolding of life. Much of the prestige of science derives from the power and elegance of the laws of physics, which are indeed wonderful predictors of the behaviour of bodies, for a few steps. But try predicting with just Newton's laws where a particular billiard ball will end up after a few bounces around a pool table that also holds a dozen other balls. Better yet, try predicting the weather in detail for Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, for 2.18pm on the first Thursday in October. It can't be done, even though all the particles involved obey the known laws of physics. Those same laws of physics that accurately calculate the trajectory of a cannonball are close to useless with complex systems. And as we can see, with this example of lactase persistence, life is a complex system. So we get the spectacle of nearly a hundred brilliant scientists working for years, publishing their best results in one of our most prestigious journals, and they report their struggle to understand why one nucleotide change out of 50,000 might have given some sort of advantage in some sort of circumstance or another. Contrast that poignant struggle with the smug pronouncements one routinely reads in textbooks and scientific society bulletins, that science most assuredly knows that all of life from the genetic code to molecular machines to eukaryotic cells to worms to elephants to the human mind, is the result of a Darwinian process. Talk about straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. The second post I'll read to you now is called Devolution Watch. Malaria gnaws off a leg. When an organism rids itself of a disadvantageous feature, the piece asks, is that another good example of evolution? or devolution. In desperation, an animal that gets caught in a mechanical trap sometimes gnaws off its pinned limb to set itself free. The poor creature then has to live the rest of its life without the appendage, but at least it survives. There is a plodding evolutionary analogue to that urgent real-time dilemma. If some feature of a species puts it at a competitive disadvantage in its current environment, then a mutation that eliminates the feature could be selected as a way for future generations to better survive. A sad example of this is the proliferation of tuskless elephants in Africa under the pressure of illegal ivory poaching. A cellular, molecular example of the same phenomenon has recently been in the news. We humans also hunt down and kill Plasmodium falciparum, which is the single-celled parasite that causes the worst form of malaria. A person who is suspected of being infected by the malaria parasite is often screened in a clinic with a rapid diagnostic test. If the test is positive, the person is treated with anti-malarial drugs. If the test is negative, treatment is withheld. 
beneficial loss. The most frequently used diagnostic test kit for malaria checks for the presence in the patient's blood of either of two similar malarial proteins, called PFHRP2 or PFHRP3. A new paper in Nature Microbiology, titled Plasmodium falciparum is evolving to escape malaria rapid diagnostic tests in Ethiopia, informs us that malaria variants that have deleted the genes coding for those proteins are spreading in Ethiopia. Like tusks to elephants, the proteins are presumably useful to the parasite, other things being equal. But when the environment changes and the proteins become a net drawback, the quickest evolutionary solution is to get rid of them. That's an interesting fact of biology, and can be medically important. However, it's important to note that it's just one more example of devolution, the beneficial loss of genetic information. It's also important to note that devolution is not restricted to situations where humans are hunting other organisms. Rather, loss of genetic information is expected to occur in whatever situation or moment when it would be helpful. I capture this fundamental evolutionary concept in my 2019 book Darwin Devolves as what I call the first rule of adaptive evolution. Break or blunt any gene whose loss would increase the number of offspring. Lastly, I'll read Behe's post titled Recognizing Design by a Purposeful Arrangement of Parts. Here, Behe responds to a reader by taking us to the heart of design detection in living things. A correspondent asked about specified complexity and the intelligent design of the eye. I explained why I much prefer the phrase purposeful arrangement of parts as a criterion for design versus irreducible complexity, specified complexity, specified small probability, information, complex specified information, or other phrases. The critical difference between ID and Darwinian evolution and all other proposals for unintelligent evolutionary processes, is the involvement of a mind in ID. The philosopher Lydia McGrew once wrote that the basic question of ID boils down to the question of other minds. One of Alvin Plantinga's claims to fame is that he argued 50 years ago, in God and Other Minds, that, I paraphrase, the perception of the existence of God is the same sort of problem as the perception of the existence of other minds. Minds and Purpose So how do we perceive the work of a mind? As I've written in my books, most extensively in Darwin Devolves, minds, and only minds, can have purposes. Thus, to the extent it can manipulate things, a mind can arrange parts to achieve its purposes. Of course, we ourselves have minds, and it is a fundamental power of mind that it can discern purposes. Thus, we can recognize that a mind has acted by perceiving a purposeful arrangement of parts. There is no other way that I can think of by which we can recognize another mind. For purposes of detecting other minds, parts can be virtually anything. Examples include the purposeful arrangement of sounds and speech, words and letters and writing, mechanical parts and machinery, the timing of events in a surprise party combinations of all these things, and an infinite number of other ways. There are many other things to say to fill this out, and I can't go into it here, especially the issue of spandrels, 
that is, features that are unintended for themselves, but are the side effects of constructing design systems. Nonetheless, the overriding point is that we can only recognize design and mind in the purposeful arrangement of parts. Zeros and Ones Other phrases that people use to indicate intelligent design all boil down to purposeful arrangements of parts. For example, Stephen Meyer likes to point out that we know intelligent agents produce information, so when we come across coded information in a computer program, we can conclude that it was produced by an intelligent agent. True enough. Yet how do we know there is information in a string of zeros and ones, in a computer program? Only if we find that they are arranged for a purpose. That is, if the computer program has a function. If it can do something purposeful. In the same way, irreducibly complex systems resist Darwinian explanation. But how do we know they're designed? Because we can see them do something. That they have a purpose. They're a purposeful arrangement of parts. As an aside, IC systems have two relevant properties. Their discontinuous nature resists Darwinism, and their manifest purposiveness strongly points to design. Finally, in the case of the eye, rather than specified complexity, I think it is much, much easier to parse design for a lay audience, or even a professional one, as a purposeful arrangement of parts. Audiences will immediately recognize the purpose in the arrangement of the eye's components. In my view, the phrase specified complexity only obscures the same meaning as found in purposeful arrangement. The specified in the phrase specified complexity is pretty much the same as purposeful, and complexity the same as arrangement. Yet the phrase purposeful arrangement is at once less mathy, less forbidding, more accessible, and clearer. That was a reading of three recent articles by Michael Behe, published at evolutionnews.org, an invaluable resource with daily coverage of evolution and intelligent design news and research. Visit the site often to see the latest coverage or search the voluminous archives. It's all at evolutionnews.org. And if you enjoyed the insight in these three posts by Behe, there's a lot more where that came from. For more of his arguments and discussion on the limits of Darwinism and the case for intelligent design, read his latest two books, Darwin Devolves and A Mousetrap for Darwin. Find them both at Amazon.com. I'm Andrew McDermott for ID the Future. Tune in again soon, and thanks again for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.